Book Three, Chapter Three of *The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth* by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Chapter the Third: Young Cattles in London. One. All unaware of the trend of events, unaware of the laws that were closing in upon all the brethren, unaware indeed that there lived a brother for him on the earth. Young Cattles chose this time to come out of his chalk-pit and see the world. His brooding came at last to that. There was no answer to all his questions in Cheesing Eyebright. The new vicar was less luminous even than the old, and the riddle of his pointless labor grew at last to the dimensions of exasperation. "'Why should I work in this pit day after day?' he asked. "'Why should I walk within bounds and be refused all the wonders of the world beyond there?' What have I done to be condemned to this? And one day he stood up, straightened his back, and said in a loud voice, No. I won't, he said, and then with great vigor cursed the pit. Then, having few words, he sought to express his thought in acts. He took a truck half filled with chalk, lifted it, and flung it, smash, against another. Then he grasped a whole row of empty trucks and spun them down a bank. He sent a huge boulder of chalk bursting among them, and then ripped up a dozen yards of rail with a mighty plunge of his foot. So he commenced the conscientious wrecking of the pit. "'Work all my days,' he said, "'at this!' It was an astonishing five minutes for the little geologist he had in his preoccupation overlooked. This poor little creature, having dodged two boulders by a hairbreadth, got out by the westward corner and fled athwart the hill, with flapping rucksack and twinkling knickerbockered legs, leaving a trail of Cretaceous echinoderms behind him, while young Cattles, satisfied with the destruction he had achieved, came striding out to fulfill his purpose in the world. "'Work in that old pit until I die and rot and stink?' What worm did they think was living in my giant body? Dig chalk for God knows what foolish purpose? Not I. The trend of road and railway, perhaps, or mere chance it was, turned his face to London, and thither he came striding, over the downs and athwart the meadows, through the hot afternoon, to the infinite amazement of the world. It signified nothing to him that torn posters in red and white, bearing various names, flapped from every wall and barn. He knew nothing of the electoral revolution that had flung Catterham, Jack the Giant Killer, into power. It signified nothing to him that every police station along his route had what was known as Catterham's Ukase upon its notice board that afternoon, proclaiming that no giant, no person whatever over eight feet in height, should go more than five miles from his place of location without a special permission. It signified nothing to him that, on his wake, belated police officers, not a little relieved to find themselves belated, shook warning handbills at his retreating back. He was going to see what the world had to show him, poor incredulous blockhead, and he did not mean that occasional spirited persons shouting, "'Aye!' at him should stay his course." He came on down by Rochester and Greenwich, towards an ever-thickening aggregation of houses, walking rather slowly now, staring about him, and swinging his huge chopper. 
People in London had heard something of him before, how that he was idiotic but gentle, and wonderfully managed by Lady Wondershoot's agent and the vicar, how in his dull way he revered these authorities, and was grateful to them for their care of him, and so forth. So that when they learnt from the newspaper placards that afternoon that he also was on strike, the thing appeared to many of them as a deliberate concerted act. "'They mean to try our strength,' said the men in the trains going home from business. "'Lucky we have Catterham. It's an answer to his proclamation.' The men in the clubs were better informed. They clustered round the tape, or talked in groups in their smoking-rooms. "'He has no weapons. He would have gone to Sevenoaks if he had been put up to it.' Catterham will handle him. The shopmen told their customers. The waiters in restaurants snatched a moment for an evening paper between the courses. The cabmen read it immediately after the betting news. The placards of the chief government evening paper were conspicuous with grasping the nettle. Others relied for effect on giant redwood continues to meet the princess. The echo struck a line of its own with Rumored revolt of giants in the north of England. The Sunderland giants start for Scotland. The Westminster Gazette sounded its usual warning note. Giants beware, said the Westminster Gazette, and tried to make a point out of it that might perhaps serve towards uniting the Liberal Party, at that time greatly torn between seven intensely egotistical leaders. The later newspapers dropped into uniformity. The giant in the New Kent Road they proclaimed. "'What I want to know,' said the pale young man in the cheese shop, "'is why we aren't getting any news of the young Cossers. You'd think they'd be in it most of all.' "'They tell me there's another of them young giants got loose,' said the barmaid, wiping out a glass. "'I've always said they was dangerous things to have about, right away from the beginning. It ought to be put a stop to. Anyhow, I hope he won't come along here.' "'I'd like to have a look at him,' said the young man at the bar recklessly, and added, "'I seen the princess.' "'Do you think they'll hurt him?' said the barmaid. "'May have to,' said the young man at the bar, finishing his glass. Amidst a hum of ten million such sayings, young cattles came to London. 2. I think of young cattles always as he was seen in the new Kent Road, the sunset warm upon his perplexed and staring face. The road was thick with its varied traffic, omnibuses, trams, vans, carts, trolleys, cyclists, motors, and a marveling crowd, loafers, women, nursemaids, shopping women, children, venturesome hobbledehoys, gathered behind his gingerly moving feet. The hoardings were untidy everywhere with the tattered election paper. A babblement of voices surged about him, one sees the customers and shopmen crowding in the doorways of the shops, the faces that came and went at the windows, the little street boys running and shouting, the policemen taking it all quite stiffly and calmly, the workmen knocking off upon scaffoldings, the seething miscellany of the little folks. They shouted to him, vague encouragement, vague insults, the imbecile catchwords of the day, and he stared down at them, at such a multitude of living creatures as he had never before imagined in the world. Now that he had fairly entered London, he had had to slacken his pace more and more, the little folks crowded so mightily upon him. 
The crowd grew denser at every step, and, at last, at a corner where two great ways converged, he came to a stop, and the multitude flowed about him and closed him in. There he stood, with his feet a little apart, his back to a big corner gin palace that towered twice his height, and ended in a sky sign, staring down at the pygmies and wondering, trying, I doubt not, to collate it all with the other things of his life, with the valley among the downlands, the nocturnal lovers, the singing in the church, the chalk he hammered daily, and with instinct and death and the sky, trying to see it all together coherent and significant. His brows were knit. He put up his huge paw to scratch his coarse hair, and groaned aloud. "'I don't see it,' he said. His accent was unfamiliar. A great babblement went across the open space, a babblement amidst which the gongs of the trams, ploughing their obstinate way through the mass, rose like red poppies amidst corn. "'What did he say? Said he didn't see. Said, where is the sea? Said, where's a seat? He wants a seat. Can't the brasted fool sit on a house or something?' "'What are you for, you swarming little people?' "'What are ye all doin'? What are ye all for? "'What are ye doin' up here, ye swarmin' little people, "'while I'm a-cuttin' chalk for ye down in the chalk-pits there?' His queer voice, the voice that had been so bad for school discipline at Cheesing Eyebright, smote the multitude to silence while it sounded and splashed them all to tumult at the end. Some wit was audible, screaming, "'Speech! Speech!' "'What's he saying?' was the burden of the public mind, and an opinion was abroad that he was drunk. "'Aye, aye, aye!' bawled the omnibus drivers, threading a dangerous way. A drunken American sailor wandered about, tearfully inquiring, "'What's he want, anyhow?' A leathery-faced rag-dealer upon a little pony-drawn cart soared up over the tumult by virtue of his voice. "'Garn home, you brasted giant!' he bawled. "'Garn home!' "'You brasted great dangerous thing! "'Can't you see you're a-frightening the horses? "'Go home with you! "'Asn't anyone had the sense to tell you the law?' "'And over all this uproar young cattle stared, "'perplexed, expectant, saying no more. "'Down a side road came a little string of solemn policemen "'and threaded itself ingeniously into the traffic. "'Stand back,' said the little voices. "'Keep moving, please.' Young Cattles became aware of a little dark blue figure thumping at his shin. He looked down and perceived two white hands gesticulating. "'What?' he said, bending forward. "'Can't stand about here,' shouted the inspector. "'Nope, you can't stand about here,' he repeated. "'But where am I to go?' "'Back to your village, place of location.' "'Anyhow, now, you've got to move on. You're obstructing the traffic.' "'What traffic?' "'Along the road.' "'But where is it going? Where does it come from? What does it mean? They're all round me. What do they want? What are they doing? I want to understand. I'm tired of cotton chalk and being all alone. What are they doing for me while I'm a cotton chalk? I may just as well understand here and now as anywhere.' "'Sorry, but we aren't here to explain things of that sort. "'I must arst you to move on.' "'Don't you know?' "'I must arst you to move on, if you please. 
I'd strongly advise you to get off home. We've had no special instructions yet, but it's against the law. Clear away there, clear away. The pavement to his left became invitingly bare, and young Caddles went slowly on his way. But now his tongue was loosened. I don't understand, he muttered. I don't understand. He would appeal brokenly to the changing crowd that ever trailed beside him and behind. I didn't know there was such places as this. What are all you people doing with yourselves? What's it all for? What is it all for, and where do I come in? He had already begotten a new catchword. Young men of wit and spirit addressed each other in this manner. Hello, Ariocock. What's it all for, eh? What's it all bloomin' well for? To which there sprang up a competing variety of repartees, for the most part impolite. The most popular and best adapted for general use appears to have been, Shut it! or, in a voice of scornful detachment, Garn! There were others almost equally popular. 3. What was he seeking? He wanted something the pygmy worlds did not give, some end which the pygmy worlds prevented his attaining, prevented even his seeing clearly, which he was never to see clearly. It was the whole gigantic social side of this lonely, dumb monster crying out for his race, for the things akin to him, for something he might love, and something he might serve, for a purpose he might comprehend, and a command he could obey. And you know, all this was dumb, raged dumbly within him, could not even, had he met a fellow giant, have found outlet and expression in speech. All the life he knew was the dull round of the village, all the speech he knew was the talk of the cottage that failed and collapsed at the bare outline of his least gigantic need. He knew nothing of money, this monstrous simpleton, nothing of trade, nothing of the complex pretenses upon which the social fabric of the little folks was built. He needed, he needed, whatever he needed, he never found his need. All through the day and the summer night he wandered, growing hungry but as yet untired, marking the varied traffic of the different streets, the inexplicable businesses of all these infinitesimal beings. In the aggregate it had no other color than confusion for him. He is said to have plucked a lady from her carriage in Kensington, a lady in evening dress of the smartest sort, to have scrutinized her closely, train and shoulder blades, and to have replaced her a little carelessly, with the profoundest sigh. For that I cannot vouch. For an hour or so he watched people fighting for places in the omnibuses at the end of Piccadilly. He was seen looming over Kennington Oval for some moments in the afternoon, but when he saw these dense thousands were engaged with a mystery of cricket, and quite regardless of him, he went his way with a groan. He came back to Piccadilly Circus between eleven and twelve at night, and found a new sort of multitude. Clearly they were very intent, full of things they, for inconceivable reasons, might do, and of others they might not do. They stared at him, and jeered at him, and went their way. The cabmen, vulture-eyed, followed one another continually along the edge of the swarming pavement. People emerged from the restaurants, or entered them, grave, intent, dignified, or gently and agreeably excited, or keen and vigilant, 
beyond the cheating of the sharpest waiter born. The great giant, standing at his corner, peered at them all. "'What is it all for?' he murmured in a mournful, vast undertone. "'What is it all for?' "'They are all so earnest. What is it I do not understand?' And none of them seemed to see, as he could do, the drink-sodden wretchedness of the painted women at the corner, the ragged misery that sneaked along the gutters, the infinite futility of all this employment, the infinite futility. None of them seemed to feel the shadow of that giant's need, that shadow of the future that lay athwart their paths. Across the road, high up, mysterious letters flamed and went, that might, could he have read them, have measured for him the dimensions of human interest, have told him of the fundamental needs and features of life as the little folks conceived it. First would come a flaming T, then U would follow, T-U, then P, T-U-P, until at last there stood complete across the sky this cheerful message to all who felt the burden of life's earnestness. Topper's tonic wine for vigor. Snap, and it had vanished into the night, to be followed in the same slow development by a second universal solicitude. Beauty soap. Not, you remark, mere cleansing chemicals, but something, as they say, ideal. And then, completing the tripod of the little life, Yanker's yellow pills. After that, there was nothing for it but Tupper again, in flaming crimson letters, snap, snap, across the void. T-U-P-P. Early in the small hours, it would seem that young cattles came to the shadowy quiet of Regent's Park, stepped over the railings, and lay down on a grassy slope near where the people skate in wintertime, and there he slept an hour or so. And about six o'clock in the morning, he was talking to a draggled woman he had found sleeping in a ditch near Hampstead Heath, asking her very earnestly what she thought she was for. 4. The wandering of cattles about London came to a head on the second day in the morning, for then his hunger overcame him. He hesitated where the hot-smelling loaves were being tossed into a cart, and then, very quietly, knelt down and commenced robbery. He emptied the cart while the baker's man fled for the police, and then his great hand came into the shop and cleared counter and cases. Then, with an armful still eating, he went his way looking for another shop to go on with his meal. It happened to be one of those seasons when work is scarce and food dear, and the crowd in that quarter was sympathetic, even with a giant, who took the food they all desired. They applauded the second phase of his meal, and laughed at his stupid grimace at the policeman. "'I was hungry,' he said with his mouth full. "'Bravo!' cried the crowd. "'Bravo!' Then, when he was beginning his third baker's shop, he was stopped by half a dozen policemen hammering with truncheons at his shins. "'Look here, my fine giant, you come along o' me,' said the officer in charge. "'You ain't allowed away from home like this. You come off home with me.' They did their best to arrest him. 
There was a trolley, I am told, chasing up and down streets at that time, bearing rolls of chain and ship's cable to play the part of handcuffs in that great arrest. There was no intention, then, of killing him. "'He is no party to the plot,' Catterham had said. "'I will not have innocent blood upon my hands.' And added, "'Until everything else has been tried.' At first Cattles did not understand the import of these attentions. When he did, he told the policemen not to be fools, and set off in great strides that left them all behind. The baker's shops had been in the Harrow Road, and he went through Canal London to St. John's Wood, and sat down in a private garden there to pick his teeth, and be speedily assailed by another posse of constables. "'You leave me alone,' he growled, and slouched through the gardens, spoiling several lawns and kicking down a fence or so, while the energetic little policemen followed him up, some through the gardens, some along the road in front of the houses. Here there were one or two with guns, but they made no use of them. When he came out into the Edgware Road, there was a new note and a new movement in the crowd, and a mounted policeman rode over his foot and got upset for his pains. "'You leave me alone,' said Cattles, facing the breathless crowd. "'I ain't done anything to you.' At that time he was unarmed, for he had left his chalk-chopper in Regent's Park. But now, poor wretch, he seems to have felt the need of some weapon. He turned back towards the goods-yard of the Great Western Railway, wrenched up the standard of a tall arc-light, a formidable mace for him, and flung it over his shoulder. And finding the police still turning up to pester him, he went back along the Edgware Road, towards Cricklewood, and struck off sullenly to the north. He wandered as far as Waltham, and then turned back westward, and then again towards London, and came by the cemeteries and over the crest of Highgate about midday into view of the greatness of the city again. He turned aside and sat down in a garden with his back to a house that overlooked all London. He was breathless, and his face was lowering, and now the people no longer crowded upon him as they had done when first he came to London, but lurked in the adjacent garden and peeped from cautious securities. They knew by now the thing was grimmer than they had thought. "'Why can't they leave me alone?' growled young Cattles. "'I must eat. Why can't they leave me alone?' He sat with a darkling face, gnawing at his knuckles and looking down over London. All the fatigue, worry, perplexity, and impotent wrath of his wanderings was coming to a head in him. "'They mean nothing,' he whispered. "'They mean nothing, and they won't let me alone, and they will get in my way.' And again, over and over to himself, "'Meanin' nothing! <sighs> the little people!' He bit harder at his knuckles, and his scowl deepened. "'Cut and chalk for em, he whispered, "'and all the world is theirs. "'I don't come in nowhere.' Presently, with a spasm of sick anger, he saw the now familiar form of a policeman astride the garden wall. "'Leave me alone,' grunted the giant. "'Leave me alone!' "'I got to do my duty.' said the little policeman, with a face that was white and resolute. "'You leave me alone. I got to live as well as you. I got to think. I got to eat. You leave me alone!' 
"'It's the law,' said the little policeman, coming no further. "'We never made the law.' "'Nor me,' said young Caddles. "'You little people made all that before I was born. "'You and your law, what I must and what I mustn't. "'No food for me to eat unless I work as a slave. "'No rest, no shelter, nothing, and you tell me—' "'I ain't got no business with that,' said the policeman. "'I'm not one to argue.' "'All I got to do is to carry out the law.' And he brought his second leg over the wall and seemed disposed to get down. Other policemen appeared behind him. "'I got no quarrel with you, mind,' said young Caddles, with his grip tight upon his huge mace of iron, his face pale, and a lank explanatory great finger to the policeman. "'I got no quarrel with you, but—' "'You leave me alone!' The policeman tried to be calm and commonplace, with a monstrous tragedy clear before his eyes. "'Give me the proclamation,' he said to some unseen follower, and a little white paper was handed to him. "'Leave me alone,' said Caddles, scowling, tense and drawn together. "'This means,' said the policeman before he read, "'Go home. Go home to your chalk-pit. If not, you'll be hurt.' Caddles gave an inarticulate growl. Then, when the proclamation had been read, the officer made a sign. Four men with rifles came into view and took up positions of affected ease along the wall. They wore the uniform of the rat police. At the sight of the guns, young Caddles blazed into anger. He remembered the sting of the Rexstone farmer's shotguns. "'You going to shoot those off at me?' he said, pointing, and it seemed to the officer he must be afraid. "'If you don't march back to your pit!' Then, in an instant, the officer had slung himself back over the wall, and sixty feet above him the great electric standard whirled down to his death. Bang! 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 went the heavy guns, and smash, the shattered wall, the soil and subsoil of the garden flew. Something flew with it that left red drops on one of the shooter's hands. The rifleman dodged this way and that, and turned valiantly to fire again. But young Caddles, already shot twice through the body, had spun about to find who it was had hit him so heavily in the back. Bang! Bang! He had a vision of houses and greenhouses and gardens, of people dodging at windows, the whole swaying fearfully and mysteriously. He seems to have made three stumbling strides, to have raised and dropped his huge mace, and to have clutched his chest. He was stung and wrenched by pain. What was this, warm and wet, on his hand? One man, peering from a bedroom window, saw his face, saw him staring with a grimace of weeping dismay at the blood upon his hand, and then his knees bent under him, and he came crashing to earth, the first of the giant nettles to fall to Catterham's resolute clutch, the very last that he had reckoned would come into his hand. End of Book Three, Chapter Three